You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and I'm just so excited to be here. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I guess I feel fine about it. And with me to celebrate is none other than Zachary Fruling. Matt, always a pleasure. Let's uh, drill this hole and drop this nuke. What do you say? I sounds like a plan to me. I mean, it should. I, what could possibly go wrong <laughs> in space on an asteroid? <laughs> uh, nothing. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm I'm excited to talk about this one. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie, and just I think it's going to be uh, a great conversation. Before we dive into end everything, just wanted to say thank you to all that are listening. Um, please, wherever you're listening to this, just make sure you subscribe and you'll get the shows as soon as they drop. You can also find us all over social media. We're on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We're also on whatever they call Twitter these days at the 602 Club. Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We've got the entire network at trek.fm where you can see all of the shows that are happening. And of course, you can check the listeners only discussion group there on Facebook called the Babel Conference. You can join and uh, you can go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm and become part of the team and make sure all of these great podcasts keep coming to you each and every week. So before we even got into anything else, I remember back to uh, these these two years. So this came out in 1998, and the previous year in 1997, we had also had Hollywood produce two films of the same disaster genre. So the previous year had two volcano movies with Dante's Peak and then Volcano, uh, and then in 1998 we had two asteroid movies with Armageddon and Deep Impact. Uh, And really interesting, too, is that a uh, production president at Disney had basically taken notes on everything for Deep Impact, and then they decided they were going to do their own uh, with Armageddon because Touchstone uh, was a subsidiary of Disney. And so... I just I, first, I just think it's fascinating to me the way Hollywood works. And that two years in a row, we would have two competing movies about the same type of disasters, trying to see who can do it better. What do you think about this Hollywood one-upmanship? It kind of reminds me of maybe like the fast food wars of the '90s, like you know McDonald's has a triple cheeseburger, yeah. so Burger King has yeah. to have a triple cheeseburger. Does that does that lead to better movies? That because it's inherently one-upmanship, everyone's trying to one-up everyone else. Does the competition help, or is it is it too much copycat and not not enough originality? Well, I, I was wondering if the thing about this was it remind. I mean. It, It reminds me, like, I think you bring up, like, the fast food wars. I think of, obviously, Pepsi and Coke. You know, I mean, it felt like everything in the 80s uh, and the 90s, we were having these dichotomies, right? 
you you know, you either liked Burger King or you either liked McDonald's. Uh, you know, you were either a Coke person or you were a Pepsi person. Uh, and then, you know, you had them trying to do clear Pepsi and new Coke. And I mean, you've got all these things happening. So yeah, it, it makes sense to me in some ways that Hollywood would try to do the same thing. I mean, Hollywood has definitely always been, I think, about is something successful, we'll try to copy it. Has Hollywood um, you know, ever had the of, kind of brand loyalty that, say, Coca-Cola had? I mean, are there Paramount fans and MGM fans? And, and uh, I never thought of movies that way, where uh, your companies would be trying to steal each other's market share. I mean, obviously, when a movie comes out, everyone wants, you know, uh, the companies want people to see that movie. But uh, is there a kind of brand loyalty? I, I don't think of it that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you ask, I, it makes me think back to, you know, we talked about Casablanca, which was a Warner Brothers film, and the studio system was such a big deal back then. You know, you had these studios that had signed specific stars, and so the the bigger the star you had and the more films you were putting out with that star was kind of, uh, you know, the what your box office share might be. So it does seem like, you know, in a lot of ways you you it make again it makes sense that these studios would be competing against each other like this and you know i i feel like you, the the late 90s and early 2000s were just rife with disaster movies anyway i mean you, you know i twister was a big deal back then i mean you know you think of like um day after tomorrow or something like it, it so to find ideas like, okay, we're going to have an asteroid hit the Earth, or, yo, we're going to have a volcano explode, you know, makes a lot of sense. One of the questions I had as I was uh, prepping for our uh, recording today is, you know, what what was happening culturally in the 90s where disaster movies became so, so prominent? I, I can't, I, nothing comes immediately to mind other than the fact that technology's improved and we can do these big budget disaster scenes. But why why was that so appealing in the 90s? Nothing comes to my mind. I mean, do you think that it had to do with the fact that, you know, I mean, this is before 9-11 and, you know, the world has generally, after the fall of the Soviet Union, been relatively peaceful. And so the idea of an external force being what destroys us is something that people are exploring more so than the internal forces of just our everyday world. Like that the end would come not as a result of us, but as a result of, you know, an act of God. Well, there's a latent environmentalist theme to the movie, of course. You know, and it reminded me of, uh, do you remember when, when William Shatner went to space a few months ago? I think a few months or a year mm-hmm. ago. I yeah. when it was, forget yeah. when it was. He said he went to space and he had this terrible feeling of death outside the window. Like we have this precious blue marble with life on it and everything's amazing. And you look out the window in space and it's death and there's there's nothing there's nothing so special about it. <laughs> you know, we have, what we have on Earth is what's precious. And this right. movie, you know, drives that point home, I think, that, uh, you know, we really need to protect what we do have here because it's it's more fragile than we than we uh treat it day to day day yeah i mean i you know you think of uh i love the scene where you know greenpeace is picketing basically outside the the oil derrick and and the guy's like do you know how much diesel it takes to actually run the ship that you're on (laughs) here to protest like it it I think the movie does, you know, a great job of kind of pointing out some of the ridiculous hypocrisies in that sense, um, which is great. But no, I think you're you're absolutely right um, that there is very much kind of baked into the film. And I'm 
you know, I honestly can't remember if I've seen Deep Impact or not. Um, I know I saw, I think, Dante's Peak. I don't know if I ever saw Volcano. So it's interesting that I've seen like one of the the two films. It'd be interesting to kind of go back and, and compare, contrast, because I know scientifically, I think Deep Impact was supposed to be more scientifically accurate. You know, I remember almost nothing about Deep Impact. I know I've probably seen it. And uh, what, what was funny is I, I didn't really have an attachment to either movie. I barely remembered Armageddon. Uh, when I first saw the movie... Uh, I believe I was working at Radio Shack in Solano Mall in Fairfield, California, 1998. And it was one of those like big budget movies they would show on the direct TV system that we were selling. So I know it was on in the background. And I never actually watched the whole movie. Um, I remember the the ending of the movie with, with Bruce Willis sacrificing himself to save his daughter and save the world. And I, I remember that. But there's a, there are huge swaths of this movie I didn't even remember. <laughs> um, so I, I don't I didn't really have an attachment to either movie. But I do remember I remember the plot of this one. And I don't remember the plot even of mm-hmm. the impact so much. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. You know, uh, for me, because I, I was going to ask you that and I'm glad you 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 we went there because man I, this movie was one of those i mean i was graduating high school that year uh and getting to go to college so this came out in the summer mm-hmm. between me graduating high school and going into college and you know this is prime time like matt being a big fan of the movies and going to as many movies as possible and you know i'm right in the 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 this specific place that we need to be to kind of gravitate towards this you know it makes me think of uh you know this movie reminds me basically of it's independence day with an asteroid Mm -hmm. instead of aliens and so all of that together like this movie hit right at the right spot in fact i remember the day it came out i actually went and saw it with friends on friday afternoon and then a bunch of friends of mine wanted to go see it that evening that hadn't gotten to go with us. And so we went, and this is the time when movies would play, like you would start a movie that's this long at like 1130 at night. Uh, and so we went to that showing and I, I fell asleep, which is the only time I've fell, fallen asleep in the theater. <laughs> but it's because I had already seen the movie and um, it had no reflection on the film. Uh, and of course, you know, by the time the movie's over, it was almost three o'clock in the morning. So... Um, yeah. And not only that, but that year, uh, I went on a hiking trip with our church youth group and we were driving to Colorado from Dallas. And I think we listened to this song maybe 47 times. Uh, the, the Aerosmith song. I don't, don't want to close thing. my eyes. Don't want to miss a thing. Yeah. Oh, wait, so, wait, what's the name of the song? I don't want to close my eyes. Don't want to miss a thing. I, I think it's don't want to miss a thing. You're, you're right. Uh, and so, um, but yeah, I mean, just like, this this movie is ridiculously kind of burned into my psyche because of all of that stuff that wasn't even necessarily just about the movie. I mean, you know, it goes to show what soundtracks can do. So, yeah, this this movie was a, was an experience for me back in the day. It's interesting how just a few years of difference uh, can make in your perception of it. Like, so I was just a little older than you. In 1998, I was 20 and, uh, you know, in college and I wasn't going to see a lot of movies and I was busy doing other things. And this movie just never landed on my radar <laughs> uh, other than, you know, watching it on the on the TV at work, maybe, uh, you know, bet- between customers. But, um, you know, I, I so all that is to say, I, I watched it for the first time in its entirety just a couple days ago. And I was surprised how 
tedious I found the movie, to be honest. It's a really long movie, first of all, longer than I thought it was. It is definitely a and long movie. at the end of the first hour of the movie, the, first, the, well, the entire first act, essentially, I was thinking, wow, we've established these characters to death. It's a large cast of characters. Um, and nothing's really happened yet, and we're an hour into the movie. <laughs> like, this is a tediously long movie. I really wish they had tightened it up, to be honest. But I think it, it kind of suffers from its own weight. It's got a large cast, and everyone needs their scenes. There's a lot of character to establish, a lot of backstory to establish. Big stuff is happening, and, uh, and, and I, and I found the, the, the second third, and, and, and even, even all the way to the end of the movie, the third third, uh, I found the, the the last two thirds of the movie remarkably riveting and touching, even in places. I just wish they'd tightened up that first act so much. It was just such a yeah. slog. Do you? I mean, I got a question then because I feel like the emotional weight pays off because of all the setup. You know, you're getting to know the characters and you're spending time with them. You're getting to know their stories because you're actually seeing their stories mm-hmm. play out there. Do you feel like you would have cared as much if you hadn't have actually spent that time with them? Yeah, I think probably they could have pared down the cast, to be honest, I think. You know, I mean, how many how many A-list stars are there in this <laughs> in this movie? There's a, there's a ton, right? Um, I, I probably would have, um, you know, if I were making the movie, I probably would have slimmed the cast down a little bit, focused even more on the father-daughter relationship. I would have focused even more on the antagonism between Bruce Willis's character and... Uh, um, uh, ben Affleck's character. Um, and then, you know, honestly, uh, a lot of the, the middle of the movie, even though it was riveting, it wasn't what I found interesting. Like, you know, you asked a couple questions in the, in the notes for today, like how would people respond to this kind of situation? And the movie doesn't spend much time at all talking about how the world as a, as a, as a whole would, would respond. It also has this interesting, um, I don't know quite how to put this, but the the name of the movie is Armageddon, which, of course, is a biblical reference. And, you know, in the late 90s, we see the rise of of the religious right. And I wonder how much of the the spin on the movie is informed by this rise of the religious right that's going on in the late 90s as well. Um, You know, they refer to the Bible a couple of times. The president refers to the Bible in the in the in the movie. Um, But I just I just think the movie didn't focus on the things I would have found interesting about that situation, the sort of cultural context and what 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 is what would how people as a as a whole would respond and instead we get mm-hmm. we get this running series of jokes through the first first hour of the movie of this this uh you know cast of roughneck characters we've got i think yeah i i can i can see what you're saying i think that you know on the uh, the the idea of like there being a bunch of a less cast members you know it's interesting because back then they a lot of these people aren't a list characters (laughs) i mean you know like uh you know ben affleck had i think just been in and and maybe won his oscar for writing with matt damon Mm -hmm. for goodwill hunting Um, i'd forgotten jason isaacs was in this completely yeah i mean this is before jason isaacs is huge Mm -hmm. this is before you know owen wilson really hits it big uh this is i mean this is before all of those things uh and so you know the the biggest cast member and of course this is before lord of the rings so you know nev Liv tyler has been somebody who's you know um you know around and been in films and everything but i think she was just kind of starting to hit her peak at this point um and you know so the biggest people you know are billy bob thornton really and um of course bruce willis and so but just uh, on the length i think you probably could have shortened this movie a little bit. You probably could have tightened some things up. 
Um, there are some scenes I don't think that necessarily need to be there. But I would say for me on a whole, the thing that I found rewatching this is that when it came to the cast themselves, I think what actually sell what actually sells the movie to me is that they found people who could inhabit all of these characters to make them feel real. Uh, even though we might not, I mean, you know, whether it's Will Patton's character, Chick, or, you know, the, by, you know, creating this really uh, funny character with Michael Clark Duncan, uh, you know, uh, Ken Campbell playing Max, you know, you have all of these people, right, that have kind of been around a film for a while, um, or you may have seen, but they just, they create a character just by their presence, um, and I think that's, to me, the thing that's actually maybe the strongest part of this film is that the cast sells the movie. And without them, I feel like I would not like this movie as much because these people make a character to which I can immediately buy into. Whereas I don't know if, you know, you hadn't had these specific people uh, in these roles, if I would even cared at all. You know? What I think the the actors portrayed well, I don't know if you ever spend any time doing any manual labor or anything, but if you do construction or if you're an electrician or a plumber, fill in the blank, any kind of hands-on work, especially if there's some specialized knowledge involved, you know, you end up with 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 people drawn to those those roles that have really have no filter in some way. <laughs> These characters yeah, have no yeah. filter whatsoever. Anything they say, yes. you know, whatever comes to their mind, they're going to say it and they're going to say it in their own way. But I also, what I really appreciated, I, I don't know if you saw this in the notes, but I, I, uh, I appreciated the way in which uh, specialized knowledge was portrayed, you know? I mean, this is, this is a very specialized trade, drilling for, for oil. And, uh, yes. and, and lo and behold, that specialized knowledge saves the world, you know? And I, I, teach, I teach higher education, so you know, I, I want to turn people into philosophers and English majors, right? <laughs> but, you know, we need people to do these specialized roles that make the world function. And, and here's a great example of some highly specialized skill saving the world. And, and the, so I thought the, the portrayal of the characters that are drawn to those kinds of careers was, was not, not spot on. It was still a caricature, but it was, it was in the right vein. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I think... You know, again, like you get a character like a Steve Buscemi, you know, playing the whacked out rock hound, you know, I mean, he's so good at selling that type of role that you immediately kind of understand who this person is because they're they've cast people that feel very close to who they're playing in some ways. I mean, you know, Ben Affleck playing AJ, you know what we knew of him at that point was goodwill hunting and he's a Boston boy, you know? And so to kind of play this rough around the edges person makes complete sense. Um, and I think those are all the things. And then of course, you know, Bruce Willis basically being a conglomeration of so many of his different types of performances put into this character, um, is fantastic. And so, that's the thing that I just I I came away from this movie, this rewatch because again it's been years since I've seen this film. Just being surprised at how well the casting actually works for the film. They all gelled well um, together and, for sure. Absolutely, they yes. were a really fun ensemble cast. I just you know I would yes. have made it fifteen minutes, not an hour. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, and and yeah, I think I think I'm somewhere. Uh, in the middle on that, I, I think, you know, with the the film and its length, I probably would have cut, a, you know, 
maybe good 10 minutes out of it. And, and I found there were places you could have really tightened some things up, you know, even at the ending. Um, I think that there were some ways that you could have done that. I, you know, um, this is definitely a film, I think where, you know, you're, you're showing off a lot of the stuff you can do, um, with the effects, um, at this point, you know, you had, uh, had, um, you have things like this, like the matrix and phantom menace are going to come out the next year. Uh, and so this was really kind of pushing the effects work, uh, and what you could do at that point. Um, and that's like right at the cusp of that revolution that's about to happen. Yeah, it's easy to, you know, we, we tend to look at these films in isolation to some extent, um, you know, judging them on their own merits. But, you know, each of these films is a link in the chain on the way to what movies are like now. And, you know, without this without this film, you wouldn't have, uh, I don't know, I, I, I don't know a lot about the careers of these folks, but I, I was looking through the, uh, the, the writing credits and the directing credits like, oh, Michael Bay. Oh, well, you wouldn't have some of the later stuff that he did if you didn't have this and if you, and you wouldn't have the stuff J.J. JJ Abrams did if you didn't have this and so on and so forth. And so this movie just it feels like a link in the chain, not a particularly interesting link in its own right for me. I didn't really I wasn't I, I like the emotional impact of the movie, but it, the movie didn't really resonate with me so much. Um, and I didn't really have any attachment with it, but it does strike me that it's an important link in the chain that's maybe a little underappreciated from the development of what we think of as uh, as big budget films nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the things that uh, watching the film, uh, I was struck by how when you watch it through the lens of what we have now, you know, obviously things are, are much different when it comes to the effects. And you can absolutely see, you know, the places where they're trying to marry CGI effects as well as practical elements. And, you know, it's not perfect. Um, but it's interesting to me the places where I feel like it really does stand up and then there are places where it doesn't quite stand up. I think, you know, the the scene specifically that really kind of stood out to me was, you know, when we had the asteroids, you know, hitting New York. Um and the in the in and I, I actually liked this. You know, they they made a reference to that the the asteroid shower is hitting from New York all the way to Norway. So it's this portion of the earth that's kind of uh, being affected. So it's like, it wasn't just, Oh, why is it only hitting New York? You know, it's, it's, it, it gave you kind of a reason for that happening. Um, but you know, the, the effects work is something to which as you're watching buildings fall in New York and stuff, the realization of how not real that looks now all becomes all comes from the fact of our lived experience of actually having seen buildings fall in New York and realizing that it doesn't look anything like this. It's much more terrifying. Um, and it's, it's much more destructive, uh, than they even make it here, which is interesting that a movie where you're normally so over the top doesn't actually get the amount of destruction. It would be like if you cut off half of the Chrysler building and it fell this is not what it would look no, like. No, I, I, yeah, I vividly remember, of course, like like everyone our age, I vividly remember September 11th and what it actually looked like. And, uh, you know, I wasn't there. I was in upstate New York, oddly enough, so I was close enough where I paid a lot of attention. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I, I, speaking of the special effects in the movie, there there are some scenes that look remarkably good to me. Like the, like the scenes you described, the New York scenes, I thought even though they weren't, accurate and what it would actually look like. I thought they were remarkably well done and smooth and looked great. And there are other other scenes in the movie um, that were just obviously like, oh, this is this is just plain up straightforward green screen. 
<laughs> you know, there's cool stuff in the background and then there's some stuff in the foreground and, and it doesn't blend together very well. And, but I think you're right. The movie's right on the cusp of, uh, of what CGI could do. So it doesn't have the coherence of like even something immediately after like Lord of the Rings with its very coherent, uh, yeah, um, exactly. CGI. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you know, I mean, you think about the fact that the, those movies are, you know, you've, you've got the Lord of the Rings, you've got the Matrix, you've got the Phantom Menace. All of these films are going to completely, like, those companies are working on the technology that's going to change what we know of film forever. And so, yeah, I think that's that's really, really interesting. And um, I wanted to, you know, we talked a little bit, but the idea of the end of the world as we know it and how this, you know, situation there is completely different than it is now and and i was brought back to the fact you know where technology is completely different and so it would be so much easier at that time period to keep things quiet um and until you let people know what's happening you know like they said there are only nine telescopes that are under the uh, that could see what was coming and at that point and all of them, except for one, is under their control. And so, you know, unless it gets leaked somehow, like nobody's going to know. And I, I thought that that was really interesting because it gave us a look at the world where we didn't see every single thing happening in every single part of the world at every single moment of every single day. And in all honesty... There's a part of me that was like, man, I feel like the world was a better place when we didn't know <laughs> every single bliss, possible yeah. thing. Well, it, it's it comes down to more of the I, I thought process to me. It's not just that ignorance is bliss. It's that by not knowing everything about everywhere all at once, you know, everything everywhere all at once, I'm able then to focus on the here, the now, the local. And isn't that the better thing anyway? Because that's all I can really impact in the first place. And so th this just made me think of that world again. And in some ways, I think we're paying for knowing too much about things we can't actually do anything about. Whereas this world shows us, you know, like when people finally know, like they've got maybe a day, you know, and what better, I mean, you, you don't see mass hysteria. You just see people like, all right, well, I got a day. I might as well spend it with family, having food, you know, eating, drinking, enjoying life. Cause it might not last much longer than this. Your question got me thinking about the, the many different things in, that have changed in the world from, I mean, that's not that many years, 25 years, 1998 to now, but you know, we, we obviously the technology improvements, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, steady stream of information. We talked about that, but I think the, the, the political world has changed too. I mean, we're, we're more polarized politically than we were arguably in 1998, even given the, the, the political scandals of, of that time period. Um, I think you know the the religious situation has changed. Uh, you know the the uh, uh, it's not so obvious that that they, that people would have a religious spin on it nowadays. Some would, some wouldn't. That that's just as polarized, more polarized than it was in 1998. Um, I'm just curious what the, how all of that would impact people's reactions. You know, uh, 
you know, what we see in the film is, uh, you know, people kind of come together. Uh, there's no, there's no big scandal. There's no big political controversy about it. Uh, people go hide in the churches and their homes and their cars and whatever they do in the movie. But it just strikes me that, that, that the, the situation would be, would be far, far different now than it would have been in 1998. Yeah. It makes me, I think talking about it does make me wonder what would happen now if, if literally there's an asteroid coming. I mean, what, I don't know what would people do. Would would we freak out and everybody do stupid things, or would people just realize like have one final uh, Dionysian revelry before the, <laughs> the yeah? Before the or, the or is it more? Or would people more be like, okay, all I've got left is the people that are next to me, and like it, it would any like I got I don't know is any of that stuff worth it? I mean, you know, what would looting do for you? That you would have a pair of Jordans for three hours, hours <laughs> you know, you know, like, or would you rather just spend that time with your friends and family? Because that's what really matters in the world. You know, like the stuff, like, would people realize that things don't matter? It's only people, you know, th- that's a great question. And I don't know it because I do think that we do live in a world that seems so utterly lost as to what you mentioned, like the spiritual aspect of it. Um, I think we want it both ways. You know, we want a deep sense of meaning and purpose. And for some people, that's religion. For some people, that's other things. Um, but there's this kind of uh, latent nihilism that you get with, with I mean, it, from the Enlightenment on, right? I mean, uh, what happens if there is no God? What happens if there is no deep meaning? What happens if an asteroid takes us out and the entire human race is destroyed tomorrow? How can you not take a nihilistic spin on that, right? What did it all mean? How could it mean anything significant if, if, if it's that simple? So there is, we kind of want it both ways. We want meaning and we want purpose and we want connection. We want, we want, uh, something bigger than ourselves. But the reality is we live on this tiny little, you know, island of an, of an oasis, uh, you know, in this vast sea of nothingness as, as far as we know as of today. So, uh, which is it? Uh, should we take the more nihilistic uh, route or, or do we go, uh, you know, huddle with each other and pray in, in churches? You know, which way do we go? Which way do we go? And what's the, well, and what's I the think, best approach? I think that that's actually something that would, would end up happening. And, and I think, uh, just to kind of, you know, I'm, I mentioned the idea of, of our, um, thoughts about like 9-11 and how that of course changes the the reality of what we look like what things look like you know um and what what things of this film even look like and, and what our thought process would be about that you know to me i think one of the things that that brings to mind is that you know when when 9-11 happened i think what we saw was a resurgence of people you know finding uh faith again right you know because of the the thought process of okay this is it you know and 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 so i think that there actually might be something to that um you know when with the end of the world we we know it when you when your push comes to shove you know that you know the the saying is is there's no atheists in foxholes (laughs) you know um when the entire world is a foxhole you know um you really do have to come to grips with do you really believe there's nothing or and and are you really going to stake your life on that um when it's going to end in 15 hours or whatever or are you going to look for something else and i think that's a uh, that would have been interesting to to see the movie be able to deal with more um but the way the movie does seem to deal with it is that 
people cling to friends and family and those type of that's things. A, and, and that's what they hold to. That, absolutely. Right. So, but you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me there's this passage from from one of my favorite philosophers, Nietzsche. He said, uh, uh, "I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's something like this: like you know, uh, way back in the in some backwoods corner of the universe, there was a star on which clever beasts invented knowing, and it was the most you know arrogant, mendacious <laughs> uh, moment of, of of world history. But it was just a moment, and eventually the star cooled and congealed, and the clever beasts had to die. And so much for <laughs> so much for human uh, kind and human ambition and human meaning, uh, and this movie takes that kind of approach. I mean, you know, think about it. If the if the uh, the world's going to end tomorrow, uh, it's it's hard to. We might cling to things. Absolutely, psychologically, we'd cling to things. But how could you how could you realistically say it was all it all mattered when it, when we can blink out of existence that easily? It's it's hard not to, to step back and go. Maybe nihilism is the right approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I do think it, it creates really interesting questions, and um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if that's exactly. I mean, I don't think I would go towards the the nihilism route, um, just because um, to believe that you know all of this is meaningless would is makes it all meaningless and. I don't, and I, like you said, man search for meaning is something that's super important. Well, we're meaning makers. And, we make our own meaning, even if there isn't any deep meaning, right? Well, yeah, well, you can make your own meaning, but that's still meaningless, you know, like in, in, in the end, like if, if, if you're following that logic all the way down to its, uh, you know, ultimate uh, unpacking, like if you're making up your own meaning, it's still meaningless. So, uh, you know, uh, you can cling to something because we as human beings have to. I think the bigger question is why do we have to, you know? Um, and to me, that's the thing that is, is most interesting about that question because I think the the reason the, – the question about why do human beings have to create meaning for themselves, why do they have to have some meaning is um, so influential then until, into how you would – actually answer that question i think it it leads us to the fact that that meaning is more important than us just like needing it like why do we need it well you know i I think that's a bigger question and the answer to that question can't just be because we need it i I thought Um, the president's comments in the movie were were uh at least relevant and, and and particularly interesting he basically said uh you know all the think of all the the steps and achievements you you know humans have have uh, have uh, done over time. Even the missteps, the wars and the and the the controversies and whatnot. All of those led led us right here to this moment, our greatest challenge. And and uh, you know that's um, it's an incredibly linear way of looking at history. <laughs> but but I, I like that he said even even the missteps brought us here, and those were important too. And you know we can. Uh, we can uh, you know rise rise and meet the challenge together because we even because we had the missteps. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think is another important thing that the movie does show is that it's true to our reality, right? Like a lot of the things that we had uh, and came up with for NASA had come from like weapons research mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, what we get from NASA uh, and the, the the desire to get to the moon, you know, leads to all these other inventions, right? It's it's the the search for knowing and meaning and something greater that leads us to that you know even the discoveries that from war and all of that to be able to get to 
the place where you could do what we do in this movie, which we still can't anyway. Um, it, of course, you know, the space shuttles they have and all that stuff is still, I think, a little beyond us uh, the way they all work. But to realize that, yeah, all of our knowledge can lead us to good places, right? Um, and it's about how we use that knowledge that 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 creates the good and the bad of it. It's the it's the action, you know. And I think that was something that I really liked about the film because they took all the things that we had learned, even the things that could have been considered bad, put them to the right use and instead of a negative outcome we get a positive outcome you know we get the saving of the world instead of the destruction of the world and i think that's the thing that really you know when you kind of talked about the the environmental aspect of the film it's like we have the technologies to make uh our environment cleaner and better will we use them that's the question and uh, those are still all a lot of them are on the table but we refuse to use them. So, you know, that I I love that because I do think, again, it's a really small part of the film, um, but there are some great questions there. Well, and, you know, and, there's, um, we'll use them when we, when there's a need to probably when there's an actual crisis, so we'll wait too late <laughs> and then we'll use them just like in this movie. Now that I remember uh, the, uh, I forget the guy, the character's title, but the, director of nasa let's call him the director of nasa i forget his, his name from at the moment but he tells the president you know we've we've scanned three percent of the sky <laughs> this stuff's there's it's a big sky and this stuff costs money and you know we, we're under budget here so uh you know we don't have a very very big budget so we haven't been able to do our jobs very well well and that's something that uh you know i think the film leads us to something really interesting uh in the fact that we play out the Star Trek axiom of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And so the fact that uh, we are going to, to have these willing participants who may or may not be sacrificing their own lives on this one-way trip, which could very easily be a one-way trip for them, to make sure that all can live. Exactly. And, you know, I think there's something about that that we as human beings just like when you're when we're talking about meaning and everything like still our greatest stories almost always come down to one person sacrificing for another. And we can't seem to get away from that in our storytelling. It's a theme that's come up. And I mean, even the the small number of movies you and I have talked about together, uh, you know, it came up in Braveheart. It came up in Casablanca. It came up, comes up here. It's the, there's something universally appealing about that, about that uh, trope. Well, and I, I think that the, the thing that is interesting about that and, and where I was kind of going with the idea of meaning, the question as why is that the case I think is a is a question to which leads us to answers to which a lot of people don't like, but I think they um, they all come back to that's what C.S. Lewis and you know J.R.R. Tolkien would say. Um, they are the the mythologies we tell about the true mythology and calling. Um, the story of the Bible, true mythology, that it's the mythology that's actually true. And every other story we tell has to do with, in some ways, recreating that story in different ways, shapes and forms. 
but it can't get away from that story, uh, which all comes down to right what self-sacrifice. Well, there, this isn't necessarily a dichotomy because I think you could you could give a an interpretation of any given character like this, a hero character from either perspective. There's the kind of Judeo-Christian lens. There's which is you know self-sacrifice and martyrdom and um, you know, lack of hubris and, and whatnot. But then those very same characters often have these asso- these character traits we associate with more of the Greek hero mindset, right? They they do have hubris and they do have overconfidence and they do want to be heroes and they do want to be recognized. Like the like the Russian cosmonaut who's like, I <laughs> I'm not going to be the guy who didn't volunteer. <laughs> you know, I, I have to be the brave one. And so, which is it? You know, is which which set of values is driving those characters? And again, I don't think it's really a dichotomy. But you know, if you're if you're Christian, you're going to go, okay, I'm going to look at it from the martyrdom standpoint but if you're more of a humanist you're gonna go god look at look at the look at the chutzpah these guys have right no i i i understand what you're saying i just think again my that does not answer the question as to why we still love stories of self-sacrifice so much why they prick us in the heart in a way that no other story does i don't know i think, I, they, I, I think it's I mean, we're social creatures, first of all, so we like people that will sacrifice themselves for the for the greater good in, inherently. But there's also there's also an element of, um, you know, I don't, don't we all wish we could be like that? You know, we all wish we could be the hero. We'd like to think we're strong enough to to do the right thing in those situations and not just you know go be hedonist for our last twelve hours on earth. But I think that the 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 very answer to that question is that if we, it's truly all meaningless, we wouldn't feel like that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to drive at is that the, the, the reason that we intrinsically, even without thinking, respond to stories of self-sacrifice is because it's ingrained in all of us in a way because there's a truth to that story that goes beyond anything else. And so you can't get there. Just by saying that we're social creatures, you can't get there just by saying we're, you know, um, anything else. Like it, because it doesn't. Again, if I if I begin to unpack all of those things, we, it doesn't get you to that we would all respond to stories of self sacrifice. What it gets us to is that if you know, th- we're we're truly just uh, here on our own. It's all meaningless. Like we, I wouldn't care about other people. I don't need other people. Other people don't matter. Nothing matters. Mm-hmm. So therefore, these stories I don't think would actually mean anything to us. Like so, it leads me all the way back to it's like the why. If we're really answering the why, I don't think it can go down a road that's not spiritual. I don't think it can go down a road where there, you know, isn't a story that's true beyond all stories that inspires us to write our own stories. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what the kind of, away from you it. know, flip side of the coin is some sort of, uh, you know, evolutionary, uh, you know, cultural anthropo- anthropological standpoint on it. Like, you know, how would the human race have got so far if it weren't the case that, that, that we find that appealing? Um, but it's not, it's not a very satisfying answer, right? You know, they, I think probably because yeah. it moves us, you know, I mean, fundamentally I'm a romantic and so it's like, these stories mm-hmm. are moving in some, in some 19th century romantic sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, we, we want the emotional uh, impact of it, the emotional deep impact of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, 
the deep impact as you mentioned <laughs> i love that it's very funny um it's good i like it that's that's perfect is because it it it's not just romantic right um because i don't even think romanticism can answer those questions for and these us stories have, have a lo- uh, history right. long before romanticism uh, as exactly we know it. Yeah, exactly mm-hmm. and i think that's the thing you know um these stories are so universal and so much bigger than you know just one society it it just it's something that's been happening for so long i think that's the that's the other thing there's got to be something more to it which you know i mean Again, the fact that we're talking about Armageddon and having this kind of a <laughs> But it's a, it's a chicken and an egg problem, right? To some extent, these stories are chasing our values. We have these values, and so we write stories in line with these values. On the other hand, these stories set the, – they, they define our values to some extent. These stories are our history, and we respond to them. And they, they that's the reason we have the values we have, because these stories are so ancient. But I, I think – I still think that that can't quite answer the question. Because why we have those values in the first place – doesn't come from the stories. The, the you know, see what I'm saying? Like the you were, we still can't get to the the crux of the question. Why would we have those values in the first mm-hmm. place if n- nothing has any meaning? But human beings can't get away from the idea that there is meaning, there is value. And that something has value, we just we literally. I, well, I guess can't. to some extent we that's my point. The, the nihilism of this movie like is not that's not the norm in human history, right? The human history is full of meaningfulness and storytelling and values and right. And it's only in the last couple hundred years that we can tell a nihilistic interpretation of a story like this, right? Because well, and the reason is is because nobody can actually live as a nihilist, regardless of whether you'd want to or not. If you did, you would just blow your brains out because <laughs> so, you would realize there's no meaning. Yeah, exactly. But that's my point. It's like we can't – we don't have the ability as human beings to live like mm-hmm. that because we have to have meaning. If we truly believed that there was no meaning, we would just lay down and die because that we we can't live like that. And I think that the, because we're not wired to. Um, I think it's because we're not created to. Um, and I think that's the, the that's the interesting thing about this this film. Strangely enough, is to be able to kind of like think about those type of things because this movie does paint a picture of like what would you do if the end was coming? Yeah, and, and I gotta say, how you know, you as much as I've, I've been criticizing the movie, I, I really was not a fan of the first hour of the movie or so. But I thought the middle part of the movie was was remarkably uh, compelling, and and uh, I thought the emotional impact was still was still a punch in the gut at the end of the movie, and it was remarkably effective at mm-hmm. those things. I just yeah. wish those would have been a little more of the focus. But yeah, yeah, I mean, so and I'm I'm glad that you were able to to kind of get to that place. Um, by the end of the film and you know i i find the same thing you know i do think that there is a way in which the the movie is able to kind of find a place in in moving me because of the fact that we spent enough time with the characters so that i would care about them um and you know i i want to ask you this was one of those things where a movie had a soundtrack that went beyond just the film. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as I mentioned, you know, I don't want to miss a thing. We listened to that a trillion times on the on the yeah, way to and from Colorado. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
How did you feel about the way in which, you know, the music plays such a big part in, in not only defining scenes, but defining characters with the type of music that they're listening to? Um, did all of that work for you? Does it still work for you, even though we're so removed from the soundtrack by this point? I think it does, because I, 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 I've known people like this. I know people in specialized jobs, and I've done manual labor, and you, all, you always have the rock and roll soundtrack. If you got to build a house, you put the rock and roll on, and you build the damn house, right? <laughs> and so, you know, the, obviously, you, you, need, you can't have a, you know, a classical score with, a, with a, a movie like this, not with these characters, right? you got to have the rock and roll soundtrack. Uh, on the other hand, there were parts of it that I think were, were really cheesy. It's like, okay, Liv Tyler's in the movie, so so of course there's going to be a couple of Aerosmith songs in the in the movie and um sure that works <laughs> I mean yeah again the 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 music's so good it doesn't bother me at all I mean the music's amazing I, I mean that's an amazing Aerosmith song and I even really liked the uh the Aerosmith's version of Come Together by the Beatles that was that was great I'd forgotten that was in the movie that was a re- and really well done well placed in the movie actually so I, I thought the soundtrack actually helped, but uh, again, it's not a deep soundtrack. It's a rock and roll soundtrack to the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the soundtrack still works. I think it still definitely holds up. I liked it a lot. These are um, classics. Yeah, because they're going to hold up forever. Yeah, hundred years. Yeah, they're gonna exactly. Hold up. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, uh, of course, the the soundtrack has a bunch of things where you know you got some people covering old songs as well, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed. Um, and yeah, I think I think they do a really good job with with picking the. Songs. I enjoyed the I mean, leaving on the on a jet plane shtick. Um, yeah, <laughs> when they're ready to they're ready to getting ready to suit up and blast off. And I think uh, Trevor Rabin, um, who does the actual score, I think he was able to create a score that kind of made me feel a little bit like, um, you know, you get this the right stuff kind of feel from it you know like it kind of gives you that that or like a top gun type feel which is what you want you know where it's like it's very yeah it's like I'm patriotic without using a patriotic theme you, you know mentioned top gun. i know we're <laughs> talking about the, the the music but i'm glad you mentioned top gun because as as i was thinking of the scenes in the movie that i really enjoyed one of the scenes i enjoyed was the the crazy we're gonna jump we're gonna take the armadillo vehicle and we're gonna jump over the canyon which is a cr- ridiculously yeah. crazy idea it reminds me of uh, uh i w- uh, just a minute ago, while we were talking about, it, I was thinking about that scene in Top Gun when when Maverick says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the brakes and he'll fly right by," and this Rio goes, "What? You're gonna do what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're gonna do what? You get this crazy idea?" And I, I love the I love the lone hero aspect of the movie, and it's 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 an ensemble cast, but they all get to be heroes in their own way. So it's a bunch of lone heroes put together, and you know, yeah, lone heroes can get away with crazy stuff, and they have crazy ideas, and they they see it through, and uh, you know, whether it's drilling 800 feet or launching the uh, or driving the uh, armadillo over the canyon, lone heroes can can get away with this kind of stuff. And we cheer them on. It's yeah, it's supposed to be it's supposed to be wildly entertaining to see that happen. No, I agree, and I think um, giving you that type of over the topness is. Absolutely. And the music helps. The the music drives all that home. Yes. I 100% agree with you. Well, I'm interested because with everything we've talked about and and knowing that, you know, you weren't a huge fan of the beginning of the film, but it seems like you were able to kind of come around with it. Where where do you land with your ratings for Armageddon? Yeah, that's a really good question. Like I said, I, I would seriously have tightened up the beginning of the movie. And a lot of the humor, you know, I, I get it. I understand people people who work in those roles and I, I see what they were going for. 
I would have trimmed it a lot. I thought the the middle of the movie was remarkably um, just compelling and entertaining and riveting. It was it was it was an action movie, and I enjoyed it. And I thought the the punch at the end of Bruce Willis sacrificing himself for his daughter and for the world was was uh, emotionally compelling. But still, it's it's never going to be one of my favorite movies. I rented the movie. I didn't buy the movie, for example, to watch it. <laughs> I don't need. I don't feel like I need to watch it uh, any time in the next twenty years, probably. So I'm still going to have to give it kind of a lower rating, um, even than those comments justify. Um, let's give it a three and a half out of five uh, Russian cosmonauts. Nice, nice. You know, it's it's really funny because we're actually at the same rating. Um, I'm at a three and a half out of five, you know, three and a half out of five armadillo jumps because, you know, I think I think the movie is above average. I think it's fun and I think it knows exactly what it is, which is, I think, the thing that makes the movie enjoyable because it's not trying to be anything else other than an outlandishly crazy movie. And it's conscious and of it. I think, it, yeah, it's exactly, it, it, absolutely. I, I think you're 100 percent right on that. And I think the thing that really makes this work is that the cast is able to bring out things in this film to where you feel for each of these characters enough, so that when they do die or when they survive, you're thankful, you like it, you know, um, you're glad, uh, or you know, you're feeling it. And so I think that's all really successful and the fact that you can just sit back and enjoy this movie in the same way that you know i can pop in uh independence day the same way now i think independence day is a a better movie than this now, i've watched um, that movie a hundred times i'd probably yeah. watch it a hundred more and still yeah. be happy with it in contrast yeah. to this movie yeah yeah, and and so that uh, that's where I think that movie gets like a whole half star more, which puts in a whole other echelon of films for me than this one. And yeah, I didn't, I don't own this movie. I watched it on Max because it was streaming there. It was great. I didn't have to pay for it. Um, and well, I did pay for it, but you know what I mean. Um, but it it's a movie that like yeah, if it's on streaming, I might watch it again. You know, sometime. Uh, it, it so I think that's that. I should say, but, but I, I don't want to neglect this comment i did actually cry at the end of the movie it's a very touching end of the movie and uh, i i neglected to say i really was you know like like you probably were anyone who feels mm-hmm. is going to be impacted by this movie and uh, yeah so, but i didn't give that enough yeah credit. no i i'm right there with you man i i think they do a great job with that you know i think the beauty of that too is you, you have the father son relationship between aj and and bruce willis's character you know you've got the father-daughter relationship going on there and and all of those things together create this very heartening moment you know where he's basically like you've got more to live for go take care of my daughter now um and you're basically the son i never had and and that's everything aj's really wanted to hear in his and it's life. remarkably you know, like, so forward-looking you know i mean you know yes. bruce willis isn't old but he's older than than either of the other two characters that you mentioned uh uh, and you know, what do you do? And why, why else would you be a parent except to drive the human race forward and look to the future? Right. So it's a very forward looking movie, even given the latent nihilism of it. Yeah. I liked it. Uh, so, you know, it, I'm glad it's so much fun to go back into a film like this and talk about it. And I'm excited to, to be able to 
to come back with you. We're going to do that with another film uh, coming up here soon um, that I haven't seen in a while, but The Prestige. So I think that's going to be a great conversation. But, you know, Zach, if people wanted to catch up with you uh, and see what else you've got going on these days, uh, where would they find you? Yeah, there's two good places. You can find me on the uh, app, formerly known as Twitter. My handle is just my name, at Zachary Fruling. Also, you're welcome to find me on my uh, philosophy blog, just ZacharyFruling.com. I tend to write about a bunch of academic topics in philosophy, but I also occasionally write about philosophy in film as well. Awesome. And of course, you can find me all over social media, MattRushing02. Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero are the places I'm most active. Uh, you can also, of course, find me here on the network outside the 602 Club with Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and The Artificial Tango. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, you'll find me with a completed show called Owl Post with Dre Kaufman talking about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. And then I'm on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But... Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 